If you have a Bible, please turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We are in a study in the book of Acts. We began this study in the last month or so, and so we are in chapter 2 today. And just by way of reminder, where, where we've been, what we've seen has happened. Um, we read in the beginning of chapter 1 many things, but one important thing was what Jesus called the promise of the Father. That a day was coming that the apostles, the disciples were to wait for, that was a day when they would be baptized, as it were, in the Holy Spirit. That the Father, or really that Jesus, would, would pour out His Spirit from heaven. We saw that promise was given in Acts chapter 1. As we read Acts chapter 2, this past week, we saw that promise fulfilled. We saw those events unfold as the Spirit was poured out, as the baptism of the Spirit did take place. And we made some observations as to what was going on there. Today we come to see now that promise interpreted, or that promise explained. So it was given, it was fulfilled, and now it will be explained by the Apostle Peter. That's what is before us today, at least the beginning of his explanation. And so we're going to begin today in verse 14. And let's hear now God's word that he has for us today. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, And give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your Old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the word of the Lord, and we say, Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it has been inscripturated for us, preserved for us, that we stand and sit here today with copies of your holy word in our own language, in our own lap that we can hear from our God. And so we pray, God, that you would speak today. I pray, Lord, that you would open up our hearts, that we might behold wonderful things from your word. I pray, Lord, if there's any here today that have have not yet uh, embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, have not yet fled from the wrath to come, young or old, that you might be pleased to save. Bring souls into your kingdom, we pray. Grow us For Christ's sake, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. 
Amen. Well, what comes to mind when you think of the latter days or the end times? What do you understand this phrase to mean? Peter says the latter days. We, we use the phrase end times probably more commonly here uh, today in our day. I think what we usually mean when we say the end times is a short, intense period just before the return of Jesus, probably marked by apostasy, rampant evil, and things like persecution. You hear this how we speak to each other when something is in the news or something wicked happens in the world and we say, brother, sister, have you heard this story? Man, we must be living in the last days. And what we mean there is that Jesus is coming back. And he has to be coming because things are so evil, so wrong, so difficult. As an aside, I think it's helpful for us to recognize that many of our brothers in the rest of the world have things far worse than we do. And they have lived in those conditions for many years. We think of our brothers in the Sudan and in Iran and in North Korea in these places where their experience is far different than ours. The Apostle Peter wants to join in this conversation today about the last days or the end times. And what I think we're going to see is that his view is somewhat different than ours. What Peter declares here is that the latter days are not just a short period before the return of Christ, but the latter days are a very long period that began at the first coming of Christ. And if that is the case, then we today, as they did, live in the last days. How should we then live if this is true? How should we live if the return of Christ, as it were, is imminent? We see in our passage that the Spirit of God has been poured out upon the budding church. The 120 or so disciples that were gathered there waiting for this promise. And the masses that have visited Jerusalem at the Pentecost feast are bewildered, we read, about what has gone on. They heard the mighty rushing wind come from heaven, and as they've turned to investigate these matters, they have witnessed the gifting of the disciples with the ability to speak in foreign tongues. And we saw that last week, that they began to speak in languages they had not previously known. And all sorts of people were gathered from various nationalities, hearing the mighty works of God in their own language. They were given the gift of foreign language. Some are confounded as to what is going on, and some are dismissive and say, oh, these men are just drunk. Right? They're, they're babbling up there. And Peter stands up having just been freshly gifted by the Spirit, anointed by the Holy Spirit, and he stands before this massive thousands of people. And let's hear what he says. Standing with the eleven, he lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. So Peter says, it's nine o'clock in the morning. The, the day began around six when the sun came up. And Peter says, listen, most people are not intoxicated by nine o'clock in the morning. Most people. <laughs> they are 
not drunk as you suppose, <coughs> but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And so what does Peter do? But he explains or interprets the, the phenomenon that everyone is seeing. These men speaking in foreign tongues, filled with the Spirit, having heard the mighty wind of God rush down from heaven. Peter's explanation is that these events were foretold. The prophet Joel actually spoke of these things. Some six, seven, or eight hundred years previously, we have a little book in the Old Testament called Joel, it's only three chapters. We, we know very little about Joel and his life and even the times exactly that he ministered. But Peter points to Joel and says, these events are being fulfilled that Joel previously spoke of. And the rest of the text is basically going to be a citation from Joel chapter 2. And so the first thing that we see as Peter interprets these events for us is that the last days have arrived in the first century. The last days have arrived. It shall be in the last days, God declares. And so what does Peter do? He, he, he looks to the crowd and he says, all this that you see, Joel spoke of this. And what did Joel say? But in the last days, these things would take place. And so what is Peter telling us? But the last days have arrived. The latter times have begun with the Christ event and the pouring out of the Spirit. I just happened to be reading, happened providentially reading Jude this morning, and I noticed as well in Jude 17, you know, you know Jude, he, he opens his letter and he says, man, I wanted to write about our shared salvation, I wanted to write to you about the gospel, but there were weighty matters I needed to deal with, false teachers in the church Clouds without water that appear to bring blessing but have no fruit and no real spiritual value. And he says in verse 17, You must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their ungodly passions. And so as Jude is warning his hearers in the first century, he says the apostles spoke of this. In the last time, scoffers would come with the assumption, here we are in the last time, and here are the scoffers in the church. So what are the last days? What were the Jews understanding about that phrase? What was Joel talking about when he was talking about the last days? Now, we've talked some about the, the hope of the Jews, that it was in Jewish-centric hope about their nation being exalted, that's something of a simplified version of what they anticipated. Uh, one brother named Anthony Hokema, he's, he wrote a book back in the 70s. I'm not sure if he's still around today. Um, but he surveyed the Old Testament and found seven themes, seven things that the Jews were looking forward to. Now, you probably wouldn't pull any random Jew on any given day and him give you this bullet point of seven things. But as we look at the Old Testament, we see these as what the Jews understood of the last days, what they were waiting for. The first one is a coming redeemer, a coming redeemer. We saw this promised in the third chapter of the Bible, right? God was bringing a curse upon humanity because of sin, but he promised that there was one day to come a redeemer. There was one day to come a son of Eve that would crush the head of the serpent. That would undo all that had just been done in the fall. 
We saw this when we went through the servant songs in the book of Isaiah, that the servant of Yahweh was prophesied to come, that he would come and preach good news to the people. He would be a light to the Gentiles, and he would be a suffering servant that would bear the transgressions of his people. They were expecting, secondly, the kingdom of God. And I might say maybe more than that, the global expansion of the kingdom of God. Now certainly here their expectation was a Jewish kingdom that had a Jewish character, but they were hoping in this, that God's kingdom would expand across the earth. They were looking forward to the new covenant. Jeremiah tells us, told the Jews of a day that he would make a new covenant. God would make a new covenant with his people, and it would not be like the old covenant, which was breakable. But the new covenant, everyone in that covenant would know the Lord, and everyone in that covenant would have the forgiveness of their sins. So they knew there was a new covenant, a change, something different coming. They hoped in the restoration of Israel. The Jews, when Assyria came in, and then later when Babylon came in, had been decimated, had been scattered across the known world. And so they were, they were hoping in a day when they would be restored to their land, restored to their former glory. They were looking forward to the outpouring of the Spirit, which we'll see here in Joel chapter 2, which is a mark of the last days. They were looking forward to the day of the Lord. We see this often in the Old Testament, this language of the day of the Lord. Now, through the Jewish lens, they often thought the day of the Lord was the day when God would judge the nations and exalt Israel. But if we were to take our time and read Joel, he helps them see that, no, God will judge all that do not truly trust and obey him. And, and seventhly, they were looking for the new heavens and the new earth. There was a greater promise than the land of Cana. And we read this in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, that even Abraham had hope in a heavenly city. He had hope in something greater than the little plot of land in Palestine. And so Peter explains that these days have arrived. All of these things that the Jews were anticipating, hoping in, looking forward to, those days have now been ushered in. This is the time of fulfillment of the promises of God. We might say it like this, the end times or the latter days are the final stage of human history. God in Christ and the powers of heaven have come into this age, broken into this world, and he has worked decisively through his son, through his sufferings and glory, to bring many sons to glory to himself. And so we see here in the first century that the latter days have already begun. They are here, they have started, but they are not yet fully realized or fully consummated. Praise be to God, there is more to come. But there is no, I would say, there is no eschatological event that we are waiting for. There's nothing left on the prophetic calendar. The next event that we are longing for is the sky being shred in two and Jesus Christ coming down in full glory to judge the nations and to glorify His saints and to set up His eternal kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. So the last days have arrived. That's the first thing that Peter wants us to understand as we see this Pentecost event. Secondly, we'll spend the bulk of our time, or at least a good chunk of our time here, as he helps us see what the last days will be marked by. 
What will the last days look like? What will happen so that we can know that they are here? Joel spoke these words long ago. And the first thing that we see is the end times pouring out of the Spirit. The last days will be marked by God pouring out His Spirit. Verse 17, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Have you ever wrestled with the question of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and the Holy Spirit in the New? What was the activity of the Spirit in the Old with God's people and what was the activity in, in, in the New? This is a difficult at times question for us to wrestle with. Um, I, I, some, some Christians might say that Old Testament saints didn't have the Spirit. Only those that the Spirit came upon had anything to do with the Spirit. I don't, I don't think that's correct. But I'm going to use this term very broadly. Protestants, I think, have historically, commonly understood that the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit is universal in the Old Covenant and the New. If Old Testament people were also born in Adam, fallen in sin, dead in trespasses and sins, unable to discern the spiritual things of God, then how could they be saved unless they too had the change of heart, the regenerating work of the Spirit that is needed? And we see this, I think, in John 3. Jesus expecting Nicodemus to know this before the cross. But we do see in the Old Testament that the empowering, the gifting aspect of the Spirit was usually reserved for prophets for priests and for kings. And that power could come on someone and that power could be removed from someone. Let's look at one example of this if you turn to Numbers chapter 11. In Numbers chapter 11, Moses is still basically, of course, under the Lord, but he's still basically a one-man show. And he has a lot of people that he's trying to shepherd and they're frustrated with him as they often were in Numbers chapter 11. 11. And he's, they're grumbling at him about food. And so Moses goes back to God and Moses is sort of venting here to the Lord. How am I supposed to deal with these 600 people on foot besides women and children and old folks? And God tells Moses to raise up 70 elders, go into the group, find 70 men that are already recognized as leaders and bring them to me, and they will be your help. And let's read now in Numbers 11, verse 24. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him, on Moses, and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. So we see here that Moses already has the Spirit of God. Moses has the gifting, the anointing, the empowering of the Spirit. But he may be the only one at this time. Maybe Aaron does. And so God takes some of the Spirit that is on Moses and he places it upon these men. And did you see what they did? Interestingly enough, they prophesied. 1,500 years prior to the Pentecost event, the Spirit falls on men, and they as well prophesy. And let's keep reading verse 26. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, or Medad, Medad, and the Spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent. And so they prophesied in the camp. 
And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Moses hoped for a day when the Spirit of God would come upon all of God's people. He said, I desire that everyone would receive the Spirit. Not just this 70, not just me. I'm not jealous of them. Praise God that His Spirit has anointed these men. And the Lord after that begins to speak at times of a day when that would actually take place. That His Spirit would not be reserved only for specific people, but that all would receive it, all of His covenant people. We've seen this in Isaiah chapter 32. For the palace is forsaken, verse 14. The populous city deserted. The hill and the watchtower will become dens forever. A joy of wild donkeys, pastures of flocks, until the Spirit is poured out from on high. And look what happens to this barren wasteland. The wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. That was 32.14. Isaiah 44, 3, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And one commentator pointed out that this word pour is not simply a, a, a dripping or a, a little glass being poured, but it is similar to a deluge, which is the word we use for the flood that happened in Noah's day. That was a deluge. And he says, this pouring out of the Spirit will be like a flood or a deluge of the Spirit. Not a small measure of God's Spirit, but a mighty pouring out of the Spirit from on high. And so there was an expectation and a hope of a universal, one day, pouring out of the Spirit of God. Joel says, secondly, that the latter days will be marked by the presence of prophetic gifting. The presence of prophetic gifting. Look at verse 17. I'm back in Acts now. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirits. And they shall prophesy. They shall prophesy. The Spirit's blessing will result... Joel says, and Peter says, in prophesying. What do you think of when you think of prophesying or prophecy? Maybe commonly, we, we might think of telling the future, right? Forthtelling some event that's not yet happened. Speaking of things to come. We think of a prophecy of the Messiah, and it was a, it was a word given that predicted. That certainly is prophecy. Sometimes as well, we think of prophecy as a word of knowledge given to someone. Uh, an information or knowledge that was not previously known, that, a, that a, a believer speaks to another person. That as well is, of course, prophecy. But if the sign of the latter days is the pouring out of the Spirit, then certainly we have to imagine that those 120 men and women prophesied, right, at Pentecost... When the Spirit fell on them. And do you remember what they did? They preached the gospel. 
they preached the mighty works of God, it said. They didn't preach the future. They preached of the past, of what God had done in Christ and what God would do in you if you would believe. So they were prophesying, empowered by the Spirit, but they were not foretelling or speaking a word of knowledge. They were simply preaching God's word, preaching the mighty works of the Lord. So do men still prophesy today? They do when they declare the mighty works of God with the unction of the Holy Spirit. When the word is declared, empowered by the Spirit of God, that is a form of prophecy. It doesn't need to be the telling of a future event. But it is the spirit-wrought, spirit-filled unction that comes to declare God's word. And Joel says that this blessing will be universal. It would no longer be excluded from some. It will no longer be only for prophets, priests, and kings. Notice what he said. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on the male servants. In the female servants, he says, in those days I will pour out my spirits. Joel is saying that all now will receive the Spirit's blessing. I don't think we're meant here to, to differentiate it will be the, the old men having dreams and the, and the young men having visions. But what I think he's trying to say is that all, every class of person will receive the blessing of God's Spirit. Your children will have the Spirit of God, those that have faith. The old men will have the Spirit of God. Your servants in your home, if they know Christ, they will have the Spirit of God poured out upon them. Male and female, none will be excluded. And we saw that in the Pentecost event, that all had the flaming tongue of fire placed upon them. It was not just the twelve. And so I want to say something here to the children or young people. Sorry if you're a little bit older and you don't like to be called a child. If you're under the care of mom and dad, let me just say that. I want to address you very briefly here. Children, young people, if you have saving faith in Jesus Christ, if you have entrusted your soul to the only one that can save you, if you have been born again, then Joel says you have the fullness of God's Spirit poured out upon you. You too have spiritual gifts if you have the Spirit of God. Young person, do you know what that means? It means that you are a vital, needed part of this body. You have something that you bring to us that we lack and that we need. Something that we have a deficiency in. That is, the adults around you could not be as faithful and as holy without the Spirit of God working in and through you as your gift is made evident in this body. We need your gifting, young ones. If you have entrusted yourself to Christ, if you know the Lord Jesus, and you've been born from above, then you too have the full measure of His Spirit. It is not just excluded to your parents or your father or to the officers in the church. If you're a young person here and you're not quite sure that you yet have full assurance of Christ. I just want to encourage you that we are delighted to walk with you on this journey of faith. We're delighted to see you here inquiring of the things of the Lord. And we would exhort you as your parents exhort you 
to look to Christ, find life in His name. You don't have to wait until you're 16 or 25 or 30. Today can be the day of salvation. Today can be the day of salvation. And so the last days are marked by the universal blessing of the Spirit on all of God's people, all that know the Lord. Thirdly, then, he says, these days will be marked by signs and wonders. Signs and wonders. Verse 19, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. God certainly has, at this point, given and done signs and wonders before humanity. What is, what is the greatest sign? I think we have to say, He is the Christ. The God-man who tabernacled among us. The living temple who dwelled among men. The second person of the Trinity who took on flesh and walked among us. In the Old Covenant, we saw in the, in the Temple of Solomon, when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the most holy place, and the sacrifice was there offered, that God rained down fire from heaven, and the Shekinah of God filled the temple. The glory of God filled the temple so that the priest could not enter into the temple because God's weighty presence was there. And then John, in John 1, says, we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Father, only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the Shekinah of God, the glory of God revealed among men. Listen to what he says to John the Baptist's disciples. John the Baptist has been preaching the kingdom, preaching that men would flee from the wrath to come, and he understands that kingdom to be brought now. He's thinking, there is wrath coming today. And now he's in jail. And he's wondering, what is going on? Have I been hoping in the wrong one? Is there another to come? Why am I incarcerated? And so he sends his disciples, John the Baptist does, to speak to Jesus. John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, this is Luke 7, 19 or 20, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now listen to this, verse 21. In that hour... He healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. He says, in that hour, all of these things took place in one day. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the most glorious miracle of all. The poor have good news preached to them. Poor, weary sinners are being given liberty and freedom from their bondage. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The last days have been ushered in as the God-man brought the supernatural powers of heaven to this earth. We saw a sign in the sky at his birth. You remember the shepherds saw the star in the sky. They, they followed the star. The shepherds saw the, the masses of heaven, the heavenly hosts, praising God and worshiping God in that field in the middle of the night. Of course, when Jesus was on the cross and He was 
bearing there the full weight of the wrath of his father. And we read that the, the sky went dark for three hours. Darkness and gloom fell over the entire earth. Now, skeptics have tried to explain this as a, as a solar eclipse. Now, I'm not, I haven't lived all that long, but I've been through a couple eclipses, and you might have darkness for a couple moments. But this is three hours of utter darkness upon the earth as the wrath of the Father is poured out upon His Son. This language here of the sky turning dark and the moon turning to blood is apocalyptic language. It is catastrophic, cataclysmic judgment language. And he says these signs will come before the day of the Lord. We'll come back to that. Hold on on that one. And these signs, of course, that are promised, the signs and wonders that began with Jesus continue now. The apostles are filled with the Spirit. We see them healing the sick. We see them calling the lame to walk. We see the apostles even raising the dead. And so Peter says this latter-day time beginning will be marked by signs and wonders. And fourthly, it will be marked by the offer of the gospel extending to the ends of the earth. The offer of the gospel extending to the ends of the earth. And it shall come to pass, verse 21 of Acts 2, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone that calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the promise of God. We can set aside our Calvinism, our Arminianism, and all of these theological debates. God's word says that anyone who comes to Christ believing and calling upon the name of Jesus, they will find salvation. They will find Him to be a refuge and a perfect Savior. And when Joel uttered these words, think with me, 700 years, 600 years before Christ, the world lived in utter darkness and the folly of idolatry. The true God was known in one tiny speck of the entire globe in Israel. And the rest of the world was burdened and engaged in rampant idolatry. They worshipped the creature rather than the creator. The true God was largely unknown, and so it was in Peter's day. The Jews, yes, they had been scattered, but they were not evangelistic. They were not proselytizing. They were trying to preserve their heritage as best they could in foreign lands. But now, Peter says... Joel prophesied that when this day begins, there will be a gospel expansion. There will be an evangelistic endeavor not known previously to this world. As God's people will go into God's world with God's word to bring God's elect from the four corners of the earth. To gather the harvest that Christ is bringing to himself. And all that call upon the Lord will be saved. All that lift up their voice to Yahweh, all that believe upon His Son, He says will be saved. This free offer of the gospel will be given to all men. And so the latter days have begun. They began in the first century. The Lord of the harvest is reaping His own harvest fields. He is building His church as the gates of hell are are on the defense, as as, as, as Christ's church is advancing The good shepherd has begun his work of filling up his sheepfold, of bringing his sheep to himself. And as Peter interprets now these events of Pentecost, we see one final point. 
That is that the last days anticipate the last day. The last days anticipate the last days. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. The great and magnificent day. Again, this is apocalyptic language. Earth-shattering, final judgment language. We see this sort of language in the book of Revelation often and other places in Scripture. Oftentimes, there's a mixture here of literal and figurative language. Will the moon on that day turn to blood? I'm not exactly sure. But we do know this, that it will be a time of dark desperation. It will be a day so frightening, so awful, so gloomy, because the blessing of God and the goodness of God will be, will be removed. So what is the day of the Lord? I want to consider this before us. I believe in the Bible there are, there are little cap or lowercase d days of the Lord. There are times of wrath and times of judgment that God pours out that anticipate and look forward to the final day of the Lord. And I believe that Joel and Peter here, maybe even unbeknownst to them, have two days of the Lord in mind. Because if you know your history, you know that only 40 years later, after this event, the temple would no longer be standing. Jerusalem would be sacked. The temple would be devastated. For three years, the Roman Empire would, would surround the city of Jerusalem. Cities were built in these days on hills commonly with walls around them as a fortress. That is to keep everyone out. But when they are surrounded by an army, what happens with all the provisions that need to come in? Those lines are cut off. And so when the city is surrounded, whatever is there is there. Whatever food, whatever water, whatever supplies, and that's it. And they wait. And the city was surrounded for some three years, and some of the most evil atrocities took place in, inside of those walls as desperation set in, as, 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 as cannibalism even was a thing in that day. Jesus spoke of these events. He spoke of the temple being devastated. Remember, the apostle said, look, look at this beautiful building. And he said, a day is coming when not one block, not one stone of that temple will stand. And as that temple burned, when it was sacked, all of the gold melted into the rubble. And so those that were sacking the temple broke every individual stone to rubble to recover all of that gold. His promise came to pass. That was a day of the Lord for the Jews because their entire system, religion, culture was destroyed. And I believe it was the judgment of Christ. They had a generation to turn to Messiah. They had the fullness of the gospel given to them, presented before them, and they rejected the Messiah. The whole point of the temple to foreshadow Christ had been fulfilled, and God, through the hand of wicked men, destroyed Jerusalem. And the temple still, to this day, is no longer standing. And now some hope in its rebuilding. What is the day of the Lord? There is a day that is worse than that. As awful as that day was for the Jews, there is a day 
that is final, that is coming. The day of the Lord for some will be a day of incredible blessing, incredible glory, incredible joy. Hebrews says that Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, he did that already, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. We eagerly wait for that day. Amen? We eagerly wait for that day, the second coming of the Lord Jesus, the return of Christ. Peter, or excuse me, Paul says in Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He writes Titus, and he calls this our blessed hope. Our blessed hope is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So for you, believer, for you that is in Christ, entrusted your soul to the Lord, having been baptized with the Holy Spirit, for you, the day of the Lord is the day of salvation. It is the day when your salvation reaches its terminus, its end. You know, we see that great golden chain of redemption, those that are foreknown, called, called, justified. That's that one final piece, right? The glorification. It is sure and it is promised, but it has not yet come to pass. So on the day when Jesus returns in full glory, he will raise the dead from the earth. And body and soul of all that have died will be reunited as one. Sin and death will be no more. And we, his church, will enter into the state of glory. As he will redeem the heavens and the earth Think Eden, but far better. And it will be the beginning. The day of the Lord for the Christian is the beginning of eternity where we will dwell in the house, in the presence of the Lord forever. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Come, Lord Jesus, come. This is the blessed hope of the Christian. This is our, what our hearts yearn and long for. I ask you, Christian, are you preparing yourself for this day? Are you preparing yourself for this day? Listen, listen to Peter's words in 2 Peter 3. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for the hastening and coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. He says that day will come like a thief. That day will come seemingly out of nowhere. We will be going along with our lives, and the Lord will return. Are you seeking, Christian, to be conformed into the image of the one to whom you will, Lord willing, soon behold his image? Are you growing and feeding your appetite on, on heavenly things, on God's things? 
Are you filled with hope and expectation of, of the next life, of the life to come? Does your heart yearn for glory, yearn for the presence of the Savior, yearn for the freedom from sin and death? Or are you so caught up in the foolishness of this life, so filled with the things of the earth that heaven has little appeal? Now, please don't hear me. I'm not saying here that longing for heaven is us burying our head in the sand, building up our bunkers, and and staying away from everything because this place is going to hell in a handbasket and just saying, Lord, come burn it all down and get me out of here. That's not at all what the Lord has us preparing for, right? We are to be salt and light in this world. We are to live godly so that when He returns, they... Those that have mocked us will glorify the Lord on His day of visitation, realizing in that point that they were wrong, that the truth was presented to them and they failed to attain it. Our blessed hope in this fallen world, for those trusting in Christ, is the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when we see Him, we will be like Him. No matter how severe our suffering is in this life, eternal joy and pleasure awaits at His right hand for eternity. The day of the Lord is the blessed hope of the believer. But the day of the Lord for many is a day of incredible darkness and suffering and despair. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day be glorified in his saints the beginning of the last days the inauguration of the last days warns us of the last day that day when Christ will pour out on this world not his spirit not his blessing not his grace but the full fury of his wrath on a Christ rejecting world when that day comes beloved for those that know not Christ his mercy and his grace will be over. The offer of free salvation will be rescinded. And all of the world will know only the white, hot fury of His anger as He casts His enemies into eternal fire. These are sobering things. These are not things that we laugh about or consider with a trite attitude. These these things ought to cause us to weep, ought to burden us, But I fear, and I think it's needed to be said here, I fear that on that day, many church people will be included in that number. 
many people that treated the church like a social club, a place where I go to be with my friends that have the same values that I do, that's not as polluted as the world is. Many people that treated Jesus as an add-on to their lives. It's, it's just an addition. I, I'm many things, including the fact that I'm a Christian. Jesus gets my Sunday morning. Many that called Him Lord, but lived throughout the rest of the week denying that confession with their lives. Many people that were very committed to local churches, that believed themselves to be Christians because at some point in their lives, they had prayed a prayer. They had walked an aisle. They had raised a hand. They had responded to an invitation. Maybe they even grew up in church, grew up, cut their teeth in Sunday school. Since they were diapers, every time the church doors were open, they were there with their families. Many will have taught Sunday schools. Many will have been deacons. Many will have been pastors. And many will say, the Lord says on that day, Lord, Lord. And he will say, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness, for I never knew you. And they will cry out, Lord, we did so many things in your name. We were very religious. We were very active in the church. We gave to the needy in the name of Jesus. We gave our tithe in the name of Jesus. But friends, just doing church will not do. Faithfully giving our time every time the doors of the church are opened will not do. And I fear that many church people on that day will say, Lord, Lord, because we've been sold a gospel in this country that is no gospel at all. We've been sold a gospel where Christ is not Lord. We've been sold a gospel that, where the Word of God does not govern every aspect of the life of the Christian. Where holiness is an option. With masses of people hanging on to a decision that they made as, as a child, yet living in the world for self for decades. And thinking that that thing that was done is enough. I, I want to tell a brief story. This is not at all to make fun of someone, but this is what we've been sold, I think, in our country. It is the fruit. And I, I think I've shared this with some of you. But I stood one day out in front of Planned Parenthood, and a, and a lady came up in her car, and she brought her 14-year-old daughter to go into Planned Parenthood. Praise God, this time it was not for an abortion. It was for birth control. Um, but she was obviously approving the sin of her daughter. I know some would say, listen, pastor, they're going to do it anyways. You've got to protect them. I don't think that's the stance that we take as believers. And so she sent her daughter in there to go to that place of death. And she stood outside. And I went to interact with her and, and, and exhort her. And she yelled at me as she smoked a marijuana joint by her car and said, you idiot, I'm a Christian. When I pulled up, I was listening to Caleb. Didn't you hear it on my radio? We've been given a gospel that people can be so self-deceived to live for this world and to look exactly like the world and to love the things of the world. But because I prayed a prayer, because I went to a church, because I grew up in some sort of religious community, God will on that day receive me in his kingdom. Friend, it doesn't matter if you at one point in your life had a religious experience. It doesn't matter if you one day went forward in a church weeping over sin. 
What matters is do you love Christ today? Do you walk with Christ today? Do you exalt the Lord Jesus Christ in the secret place of your heart when no one, where no one else sees? Let me speak again to the young people in this church. Children, we love you. We're so thankful that you're here. You, little ones, you must repent and believe in the gospel. You must acknowledge that you have offended God, that you have sinned, that you are guilty, that you have broken God's law, that you have fallen short of glory, and that the only hope is Christ. It's not enough to live in a Christian home. It's not enough, bless God, that your dads lead you in family worship. Praise God for those fathers. It's not enough to be in church every week. But you, young people, you must call upon the name of the Lord. You must turn from your own sin. Acknowledge that you've offended God. And as Joel said, all of those that call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The question we might ask ourselves is not, did I at one point repent of something? The question is, am I today repenting and believing upon Christ? Our hope cannot be placed in something in the past because true faith is alive and active and lasting because Jesus will preserve His to the end. Luke says that His winnowing fork is in His hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. As we've seen, beloved, in Acts chapter 2, God has poured out this incredible blessing of the Spirit upon the church and subsequently on the entire world, all of his. And salvation in Christ is being freely offered to any that would come, any that would call upon the name of the Lord, any that would humble themselves and receive his grace. And men from every corner of the earth, still to this day, are being delivered from idolatry, delivered from the love of self, delivered from the wrath to come. The kingdom of God is growing and expanding. The Lord of the harvest is reaping souls from His harvest field, bringing them into His kingdom. But at the same time, a dividing line is being clearly revealed. There will be those that worship the king, and there will be those that worship the beast. There will be those that live for the pleasures of Zion. And there will be those that live for the pleasures of Babylon. And as this gospel of free grace is being spread across the globe, the enemies of God are being more clearly identified. As Jesus says, you are either for me or you are against me. And no man can serve two masters. No man can have two lords. But I fear that so many in churches try to have two lords, try to live in the world and have some modicum of Christianity. Do not be deceived today, friend. The truth is this. You can fool your church. You can fool your spouse, kids. You can fool your parents. and Go along with this stuff because if I don't, it's going to bring more trouble than it's worth. But a day comes, the great and awful day of the Lord comes, when all will stand before the Lord naked and exposed and nothing will be secret. All will be laid bare in His presence. Examine your heart. And if you find their faith, renew your faith today. Renew your repentance today. 
Grow in assurance today. Find hope that Christ has saved you. Or be honest. Maybe for the very first time in your life. And get right with God before His glory is revealed and it's too late. Let's pray.